Over at Word & Way, we have a new podcast that I want to tell you about. So first of all, thanks for being a listener to Baptist Without an Adjective. We are going to continue to have episodes here, so don't unsubscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. But I hope that you'll also go and subscribe, whether you're in iTunes, Spotify, or another podcast platform, to Dangerous Dogma. This will be our more regular podcast with episodes hitting there weekly, and then occasionally different episodes at Baptist Without an Adjective. But this episode, I want to share to give you a taste of the conversations at Dangerous Dogma. We've already had conversations this month with Alan Bozak, the anti-apartheid activist and theologian, with Lindsay Krinks on her book, Praying with Our Feet, and with Kristen Corbis DeMay on her book, Jesus and John Wayne. And they're all excellent. I encourage you to check it out. And in this episode, we're going to hear from Laura Levins of the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. So I hope you enjoy this taste of Dangerous Dogma, and then go and subscribe to the program or find episodes regularly at dogma.wordandway.org. Thanks for listening. I guess as nauseously grieved and sad as I am about all the things in the news, like I still sort of just hold on to those images of of the God that comes walks out of the tomb. Welcome to Dangerous Dogma, the authority on questioning authority. I'm Brian Kaler, president of Word and Way. You can learn more about us at wordandway.org. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Laura Levins. She's an assistant professor of Christian mission at the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Laura and I are both what you might call exiles from the Southern Baptist Convention. And as the SBC is meeting this week in Nashville, I thought it'd be important for us to have a conversation about some of the big issues that impact not only Southern Baptist, but Christians of other denominations as well. So we'll be talking about issues like racism and critical race theory and the ordination of women and much more. So I hope that you find this helpful in unpacking some of the issues behind the scenes of the headlines this week. So here's my conversation with Laura Levins of the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Laura, first of all, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You are a professor at the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. That is correct. And there are some Baptists in Kentucky. Uh, there, are, there are several, yes. <laughs> yeah, but we have the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. We have two campuses and also online um, instruction. And so we have people that attend in Louisville and here down here in Lexington, Georgetown area. So I was going to say that you all were online before it was cool, but I mean, really you were online before COVID, which is like <laughs> COVID sent everybody online, right? Yeah, like we were like just barely there. And because um, we were doing this really interesting thing where we'd use the internet to connect both physical classrooms. So we were doing Zooming as a group for like two years before COVID. And then, you know, then we just kind of, yeah, then we all had to sit at home and still try to just be together. So yeah, we've had some practice. So I'm sure people, if they don't know anything about your seminary and they hear Baptist Seminary of Kentucky probably have some preconceived ideas about who you all are. And then they might start to lose that a little bit when they realize that you that are, I work there. And, <laughs> you're a professor, not just you, but you're not a secretary. It's not that no, you I'm work not there. A it's secretary. You're a professor and I you're am. ordained. Mm-hmm. You're a minister. And so then that starts to cut against the groove a little bit. So yes. maybe we should start there. Like oh my gosh. Who are you? Yeah. So um yeah, 
Yes, I I literally am the walking like image of hey something different is afoot in this seminary. This is true. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is about twenty years old, I think, um, and. We have the same type of founding pattern as a seminary as many of the cooperative Baptist fellowship seminaries. So, um, you know, uh, because the pattern kind of goes, Kentucky was or has been a rich place for theological education for um, Baptists of various stripes, including Southern and now cooperative Baptists for several decades. And so there's um, there was a running sense uh, in Kentucky among the pastors that were like, you know what, theological education enriches all of our churches and theological education close by helps our people, our students, the people that we want to be pastors. It helps. It's just something good for the longevity of our churches. And so, uh, yeah, so they got together. Um, Greg Earwood, who was a longtime pastor in Kentucky, was the founding president and there was more groups with them. And so, um, but we I guess what makes us a little different is, um, well, it's very clear that we're not the only Baptist seminary in the state. Uh, there is one that predates us by 150 years. Uh, it is called the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, but um, anyway, so our school sort of had the chance to say, well, are we going to just market ourselves and say we're just not Southern, we're this other kind of Baptist? Or are we going to take some more constructive steps and actually declare who we are and what we are and what type of, you know, uh, leadership and theological education we provide. And that's really how we've tried to go, you know, um, and lead ourselves in this place by saying, you know, we are here, we are committed in our mission statement to form women and men um, in theological education, to be leaders and to follow after Jesus Christ in Christ's mission in the world. And so um, women in ministry is one of our uh, key uh, things that we concentrate on. We also do a lot of pastoral care and chaplaincy training because we understand that it's church and the world. And that's one of the ways in which we've been able to provide, um, uh, you know, some some significant, it, uh, unique education in Kentucky, you know, to, um, because that's an important area. And um, we've also, over the last five years or so, um, become very involved in racial justice and social justice for the black church. We have a connection with a historically black college in Louisville, Simmons College, um, by, by their invitation. I think it's something we always like to say is that we were invited there and asked to provide uh, graduate education. And so we are the first place to be able to offer a graduate degree on the west side of Louisville. So it's not just that we're here for Kentucky, but we are in we are in West Louisville too, which is a big difference. So that's um, that's what we do. Yeah, and we also uh, now have launched online education. So we have students um, connected with the National Baptist Convention of America. So we've got a lot of those students coming in from as far away as Texas and Louisiana. And we have other students coming in as you know who aren't Baptist, but are interested in, in the type of community and education we provide. And they're coming from, you know, Indiana, Missouri, um, all over the place. So it's been great. I even had a student who was living in Malawi for the semester. And so he Zoomed in from Malawi to my class. And I was like, 
like in the middle of the night or uh yeah we actually would um we would have class uh in the morning and by the by noontime over here uh the sun would have set so we watched him be in the uh, in a lighted building and he would just go completely dark because like the sun would set in the middle of class it was crazy but it was great you just talked about the relationship with Simmons and and you made a comment about West Louisville because I mean there there really is a difference between you know where where you have where Simmons is and its campus and you you drive over to Southern and its campus and these are substantially different campuses and the history is also I think really significant and I wonder if we can unpack a little bit of that because mm-hmm. one of the things that you've written about a few times the last few months and that is going to continue to be a debate among Southern Baptists as their meeting at their annual uh, meeting in Nashville is the issue of critical race theory. And if you look at just the history of those two institutions, you, you start to unpack, I think, a little bit of what critical race theory is, is trying to help us to do. Because you have, on the one hand, you have Southern Seminary founded by enslavers, all four of the founders, enslaved Black people, uh, other key leaders. It's a uh, you know, a massive campus largely built from wealth that was gained from enslaved labor or convict leasing labor later. And you have Simmons College, which was which was founded by formerly enslaved persons to provide theological education at a time when they could not attend schools like Southern. It's named after one of his early presidents who was born in slavery. And that is a really significant contrast between those two institutions. And I think it's interesting that Baptist Seminary of Kentucky with this relationship with Simmons, you know, that's a, a key message that I think you all are joining in that partnership. And so I wonder if we can talk a little bit about, about that history and why it still matters. Oh yeah. Well, um, thank you. Yeah. So there's, first of all, I think it still matters because there's so much that has been forgotten specifically about the history of, of Simmons College in particular. So, uh, and I think as you tell Simmons College's history and its story, that's also where you get um, the highlights of why something like critical race theory may be important, or, or not just critical race theory alone, but a critical attention to race as we tell history and as we tell, uh, you know, sociology and all of those things. And that's, you know, and, and especially also, I would say, critical attention to gender in that way as well. So, um, so Simmons College, just to give it its own chance to shine in the sun, um, it, uh, it was founded, uh, actually a lot like the way I just explained to you that my seminary was founded, but it was done uh, almost 150 years ago. So we're talking about the 1860s and 70s. You have um, black church pastors, Baptist church leaders who um, are convinced that uh, they need education to help their people, their people in their churches. And yes, one of the key things was we need to educate people who want to be pastors because that is the way to produce longevity in our churches. And also for them, it's the way to produce um, some very important autonomy so that the black church could be for itself and speak for itself and not be under the eye of very racist structures and uh, hierarchies that the Southern Baptists or, or any other white denomination in Kentucky at the time. So, so, Simmons College is unique because it was not founded by, say, a white northern 
uh, philanthropist coming down. It was founded by black uh, churches of Kentucky taking up a collection and uh, electing William Simmons to come and be its president in Louisville. So it is black founded as well as historically black college. And um, William Simmons and then the people after him worked hard to build that college up into a place that flourished. It had multiple departments. It had women professors. It had women students as well as male students. Uh, they, uh, one of their, uh, one of the women professors that I have studied, and Lucy Wilmot Smith is one of them that's coming to mind. And she uh, was a journalist that wrote in their newspapers as well as taught us. Uh, uh, taught students and, and would teach them reading and writing and things like that. And um, and so they did, uh, you know, one of those uh, style where it was, half of it was classical education that looks like liberal arts education now. And then the other half was about trade and training. And they had this brilliant um, uh, story of being able to raise their own funds for their buildings, to raise their own ability to have these uh, they uh, these programs, so they got into nursing and medicine as well as pastorates and education and all these things. And then um, once the uh, Great Depression hit in the 30s, they had nothing. They were they could not access a lot of the programs that the the New Deal had for people because they were black and because it was a black owned institution and the ways in which the city was starting to rezone and replan itself because of the new deal and, and, and on and on also after world war one. And so you have UofL sort of taking some of its programs, taking some of its land, taking some of its professors. And, and some of that, I'm not saying that UofL was meaning to snuff out Simmons, but that's just as was like, there's nothing else to be done because the structures of racism were so deep. And also it, it was still didn't make it right because the structures of racism were so deep. And so you do have, you know, Simmons College that could have been like a Howard University at one point in time. I and mean, it was on its way before the Great Depression. And it's kind of languished for decades and then is trying to be, you know, build itself back up. And so when they say we would really like a graduate education here, to them, that's because they want graduate education and they'd love to have a master's degree in West Louisville because they would have had that if they hadn't had to give all that stuff up uh, in the 30s. Um, but also because, you know, that that is a signal to how they would like to grow. You know, like that's there's always that part of looking to what could be the vision of beloved community or what could be the vision on the other side. And so like, you know, that's kind of um, just a little story. And and then you're right. I mean, Southern Seminary is there and I'm not, you know, and is doing its own thing. And you're, you're right. It weathered the Great Depression just fine. You know, it its persons were allowed so much more access across the city of Louisville the entire time, you know, so and it's managed to keep its donors and it's got its base. And it that's not just Southern Seminary, by the way, I'm just kind of describing how white institutions work, you know, which is, again, the critical race theory element. It's that, you know, we can talk about this and it's not, you know, it's not just one thing that held all the evil, like an evil villain in a movie. It's like this is a structural institutional, you know, th thing that everybody looks out for and we just have to have a reckoning of. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. I will say just a 
um, for, as a personal story. So I grew up in Louisville. I was born and raised in Louisville and um, lived there for several years. And I went to high school. I went to uh, high school at Manual High School downtown, which is, it's been there since the turn of the 1900s. I never heard there was a Simmons College in existence in the city of Louisville during the 18 years that I lived in Louisville. It's, it was as if when I was growing up in the 1990s that you know, they had their side of town and we had our side of town. And I didn't even know it was called West Louisville. It just wasn't talked about. And we just kind of lived in our own little world. So Louisville was also very much just uh, geographically, like the red line was kind of real in the way that we just found places to work. And even though Louisville is very proud of the way it's integrated public schools, we still weren't really integrated in knowing what Louisville as a town or a culture or a history was. I I had zero Louisville history of black history while I was growing up there. So it's kind of to go back and to be able to, to teach there and learn about Simmons College and work there has been, you know, a bit of a of my own reckoning, you know, of, of realizing the things I didn't know and the ways I thought I was moving around Louisville like a good Christian and I had no idea, you know, the whole time. So it's been a real learning curve. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a great way of thinking about this idea of critical race theory, contextualizing it with an institution, because I think a lot of times when we think about racism in white churches, you know, it's like, it's personal racism. And so I've got to, I've got to, you know, not hate people that look different than me and I've got to treat them nicely, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's great. That's important uh, in in loving our neighbor as ourselves. But there is this these systemic structures that not just today, but that for decades and centuries have held back black institutions, black churches, black individuals from opportunities that just simply were not available, whether it be the you mentioned redlining, forcing them to live in certain neighborhoods, not being able to get loans uh, for for nicer houses, not being eligible for, you know, some of the GI program, for instance, for black veterans, you know, there's so many different things that just simply were not available. And when you look at an institution like Simmons College, which, I mean, is, is frankly is a bit of a, an outlier in that they, they survived. I mean, you know, they, they, they nearly died, but like a lot of black colleges didn't survive the great depression and the decades that followed. And obviously, I mean, Dr. Kevin Cosby, the president of Simmons College today, and I've had a chance to interview him and meet him at several different events. I spoke at Simmons College actually one time. And oh, wonderful. And just, just a, a, a remarkable leader who has done some phenomenal work. But I mean, without the perseverance and dedication and then a, and an extraordinary figure kind of coming to bring it back from the edge of death, I mean, this is a college that would be a footnote in history like so many other black institutions. And so like, it seems so obvious, like when you tell the story, just, just there in, in your own Louisville, it seems so obvious that critical race theory helps us understand parts of history and why certain populations and institutions had opportunities that others didn't. And yet there are some people that are really, really scared of critical race theory. I mean, you know, Al Mohler there at Southern Seminary has banned that even being taught and he says it's outside the, the realms of the Baptist faith and message and therefore the Bible. The Southern Baptists are probably going to vote on whether or not they're against critical race theory. Former president of the United States was against critical race theory. I mean, you know, so why do you think so many whites and particularly white Christians, why are we so scared 
of looking at systemic racism like critical race theory asks us to do. Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, well, first, so I actually, um, I really appreciate your question. And I, um, it intrigues me also, every time someone asks this question, is that uh, it intrigues me that critical race theory has become the placeholder of what it is that they fear. And I kind of want to break that down because when you said, for example, the first thing that got me to write about this with the Southern seminary presidents, they did not just ban critical race theory. They banned critical race theory, intersectionality, and all critical theory they don't like. It was like anybody that wanted to ask an interrogating and transparent question, they just didn't want to walk into the room. But there are some significant aspects to those three words. So for example, without intersectionality, you would not hear the story of Lucy Wilmot Smith in the Simmons College of her work as both a teacher and a journalist. And also, if I kept going outside of the church, I mean, outside of the college and into church denominations, I mean, William Simmons became one of the early presidents of an early national convention for Black Baptists, and he put her on a board. He like, think about the difference between the boards of the Southern Baptist Convention and this board that William Simmons was trying to build in the late 1800s, is that he was trying to, integ- like, not just integrate necessarily, like, between black and white, but he was trying to integrate uh, uh, male and female leadership into at least the denominational side of things. He'd figured out that having men and women on board and in leadership together in journalism works. He gave... Uh, Ida B. Wells, one of her first journalism jobs, uh, he figured out it worked really well in the college and he figured out it could work really well in the denominational boards. And intersectionality is looking between gender and race and social and institutions. And with those questions, we can see more so that William Simmons himself as a historical figure, he is a person who was great and did a lot of things. However, we can also see how he was organizing and moving and shifting the people around him, either toward hierarchy and patriarchy or some sort of authoritarianism, or he was moving them into these systems of, you know, consensus, uh, multiple voices, transparency, trying to do what he could to build for Black Baptist life. And, um, and so for that, I... I just think the world of William Simmons as a historical figure. He really did die too soon. He was a great, great man. And um, but I think that that kind of a story, it's when you start talking about critical race theory and you start talking about intersectionality and other critical theories, we start connecting the dots between what people say and what people do and who's in charge and how they move the people around them while they're in charge and what are the rules and what are policies and procedures and who's following them and in what sort of honor and light are they being followed or to what nefarious ends are they being followed? Critical race theory uncovers all of these things because I mean, it was, it was made in, you know, in critical race theory tech like itself was sort of built within law school. And so you can kind of see what it does. It's not ju- it's just not enough to tell me what the law says. You have to investigate how it enacts, who gets targeted for that law, who gets punished for that law, who gets let go, who get, you know, so all of that, and, and that is just 
bound up in race, it's bound up in gender, and it's bound up in class because you can begin to see how once someone has power, they get a little bit more out of all of the systems. And if you don't have any power, you have to figure out how to advocate for yourself or you get snuffed out by these systems, or you there's a lot that's out of your control. And so you're using alternative avenues just to try to have your voice be heard. And that isn't something that is very helpful in a seminary situation like Al Mohler's or in the what's coming up in the Southern Baptist Convention when they wanna have these elections, when the way they have been working is to say, I am in charge, you have to trust me. I'm the authority. I've been telling you authoritative things about how the Bible says things and what it says. And so don't look behind the curtain. You know, don't ask for transparency. I need your trust. And if you trust me, I will become God's trustworthy person. And so whatever I do will be moral and it will be right. And a critical theory or any sort of critical eye is going to say, um, no, we have these statistics. Uh, what you're saying and what you're doing are different. Uh, you say you're uh, taking care of people, but there's abuse occurring. You need to reckon with this. And, and that's just something they, um, and you know, if you've got this real sense that you need to be trusted because God trusts you, and God has entrusted you. And if you even look a little bit untrustworthy, it's all going to fall apart. Well, then something like critical theory is really going, it's just really going to uh, shake you and you're going to want to keep it out. Because, I mean, I just told you, it takes a certain kind of person to want to go, whoops, I live most of my life thinking I was a good person. But I'd been ignorant and li work living in ignorance. And now it's time for me to realize that that ignorance was meant for me so that I didn't ruffle any feathers. And now I'm going to know. And now I'm going to also have to have the courage to ruffle feathers when it's, you know, because I need to act right. You know, so it's that's kind of the gift of what critical theory could give. It's what I try to give in my classes. As you were talking, it reminded me of a piece you wrote last month. You wrote it for Religion News Service, and we reprinted it at wordandway.org. It was called The Debate Over Women Pastors is a Southern Baptist Smokescreen. And I'll, I'll include a link to it in the show notes at dogma.wordandway.org. I wanted to read just a couple of lines from that, because in this case, you were talking about the ordaining of women. This was particularly after some of the criticism by Moeller and some others to Saddleback Church, a large Southern Baptist megachurch in California that ordained uh, three women as uh, in ministry pastoral roles. And as you were kind of talking about that, one of the things you get to is this, how do we read and interpret the Bible, which is something you were just kind of hitting on it as well in thinking about critical race theory. And so you're writing about Muller and some of the other critics of Saddleback, and you wrote, they set the terms of the debate with individual Bible verses that lack historical or textual context in the service of a predetermined conclusion. They present their methods as pure, objective, and timeless, but it's entirely modern, as in the Enlightenment era. Their, re their real goal is to reassert a harmful biblicism and authoritarianism. 
And then a couple of paragraphs later, you kind of offer the alternative idea of, we should be discussing the ways we read the Bible and interpret all of it as we discern God's calling and ministry today. We should recognize that women's reading and experience add greater insight into who God is. We need to have frank conversations about when and how the stories of, and texts of scripture have been harmful for women, when other texts have brought healing and the good news, and how these experiences aren't uniform for everyone. We should search all evidence of women in scripture and Christian history for how it relates to Christian leadership. And so I want to, I want to see if you can help us unpack this a little bit about this idea of how we read the Bible, and particularly this idea that I think in both of these debates, both thinking about race, I mean, when we think about the Southern Baptist Convention founded to support slavery, and then now the fight to say that women shouldn't be in pastoral ministry, the argument often is made, well, we're just reading the Bible. This is just what the Bible says. And what you're saying is that, no, there's your cultural ideas are impacting the way you read scripture. This is a modern interpretation. So help us unpack this. How do we read the Bible then? In, you know, just a few minutes. Yeah, I know you can teach a whole semester on this. <laughs> I actually do. I have a whole semester called uh, Scriptural and Ministerial Imagination, which is, um, yes, it's uh, where we do a lot of this, not just... Um, well, that sounds really dangerous. It's like you're, we're going to have a... Use our imaginations when we read the Bible? Yes. Yeah. It's about imagination. I know. Well, so I... Um, Okay, so just reading the Bible. So this is a tricky question, right? Because as soon as I say, um, well, it's more complicated, I, like, I think my line is just, it's complicated. Um, because, a, a, which is good. As long as we're realizing it's complicated, then, then I think we can like wander our way down a little bit. Um, so, because as soon as I'm saying, someone's like, well, I'm just reading the Bible. So that's a, and they're like, it's a literal interpretation. I'm just reading the Bible. Well, one, I can say, well, contextually speaking, that's plain common sense reading of the Bible that comes from a particular uh, philosophical perspective. But what's really underneath it is that there's, you know, there's always in the conflict, in the ways that we read the Bible, it is both a text of great importance that carries its own authority, but what kind of authority does it carry and who put it there? And is it God? Is it the authors? Is it God and the authors together? Is it me as I read it? Is it my faith as I pray it? Um, all of that is kind of involved in the situation. And then there's the other side of it is reading. What does it mean to read the Bible? And actually, we do a lot of things with the Bible if someone is a person of Christian faith. We do. We pray. Someone comes up with the idea of how to teach. We, ha we have like pedagogical styles, ways of teaching with the Bible, ways of praying with the Bible, uh, ways of sitting and reading it, ways of reading it and trying to um, have... A uh, conversation about it. We have people called preachers and evangelists and exhorters, and there's all these different styles of preaching with the Bible. They're not all the same, um, and they've changed over the years. Um, and so, I think one of the things that I try to uh, explain to all my students is that cultural ideas do impact scripture because, um, and they do it in two different ways both the culture that we bring to it, because we are. Uh, we live and grow in cultures and we, you know, we learn and are shaped in our minds and in the way we use our bodies and in the way we pray, all of it, our emotions as well. We are more than culture, but it's all in it kind of integrated in there. So sometimes I ask students to think about 
what was what were they thinking about as they came to this scripture? Maybe because they'd heard it before, or they'd always used this one scripture in church in a way, or someone had tried to teach it to them and they didn't like it. Someone might have hurt them by quoting a scripture. Like that's all something that we can talk about. But also culturally, we're trained to interpret wealth as a certain type of thing. You know, that's our culture. We're trained to interpret uh, masters and servants as certain types of things. That's also in our culture. And those are words in the Bible, too. Um, and then the other side is that, you know, the people who wrote all of the authors of the Bible, which of which there are just hundreds, you know, we've lost count of how many people's hands um, went into editing and writing and composing the pieces of scripture and that they had, cult, you know, that they had cultures, but also is um, my Old Testament professor when I was in school, Ellen Davis reminds me, is, is to really believe that those people were actually very intelligent. They may come from a completely opposite culture than mine, but they were very intelligent and smart as they wrote the Bible and that they were doing it with a purpose. And that really that purpose is to seek after God and to seek out who God is and to seek um, encounter with God. And so if we can, and, you know, and, and so if we can kind of have that sort of situation um, around, there's lots of different ways that we can go about trying to think about scripture without having big fights over where authority always has to stay. Because if culture is always changing, well, then authority gets complicated. And, um, but can we maybe have the same consensus around the idea that scripture is for seeking encounter with God and for um, a God that is beyond what we can ever know? God remains mysterious. And the authors of the Bible are so careful to maintain that veil. That's what I mean. Like they were really smart. If they thought that they couldn't say all there is to say about God, maybe we could learn from that is, you know, it's, it's, but instead it becomes, yeah, it becomes this rich imagination type, uh, you know, land to where we have to sort of express what we heard. We have to provide evidence for what we heard and how we would interpret scripture. And that could be based on, you know, the research we're doing or the way we understand emotion or the, you know, uh, but we also, it's, it's, a, it's something that we offer to people and they can hear it or not hear it. And, and it's more of that, like, it's a little bit conversational and a lot of imagination. And, um, and so I think that's, if, you, if people read that piece, a little bit of that is in the bottom of that piece where I'm like, if I could dream of the conversations I could have, they could be like this, to where it's, um, there's rich conversations about scripture, there's uh, aspirations to be faithful as we read scripture. There's uh, respect for um, God and the search for God that it is in the text, but also a lot of transparency and recognition that there's several cultures and things going on in scripture, um, some of which we need to pause and really wrestle with because how in the world did they get into a sacred text in the first place is like a question, but also like, how do we wrestle with, because we've been not paying attention to those things for so long, especially in terms of like, um, you know, the, the poor or people in the marginalized or the environment, you know, we just haven't been doing that. And, um, and then also we can be thinking about how we're going to have conversations together and realize that there's multiple cultures 
not just across time, but right here and now. I mean, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of global diversity. And so your voice doesn't have to be the authoritarian voice for, you know, everybody. This sounds difficult now. I mean, wouldn't it be, you know, easier if I just stood up and said the Bible's inerrant, therefore believe what I say about it? I mean, that just that well, sounds like a whole lot easier. But easy for who, Brian? Is it? It's that's never for been me. Well, me, the, me, the male leader of whatever institution or church. Right. Isn't that easier? Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it probably gets you some things, I'm sure. But I am not a white male leader, and I never have been, and um, so. I just don't have a lot of buy-in to that type of like scripture reading system. And, and in fact, I just see that it begets a whole lot of harmful problems on the other side. So both for me and all the people around me and it, you know, at the end of the day you have, um, yeah, you have sort of the, just all the nasty stuff that's coming to light right before the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of abuse being covered up and the critical race theory. I mean, you're, you're ba having to ban things out of a classroom, which is not uh, freedom of scholarship, like, uh, you know, and you have all of this energy putting people back in their place. I mean, that to me seems like a waste of time because they're always hopping back out again. Like it's so, um, I mean, I just kind of, I don't know. I, I don't really, I, I'm just not sold on the, the, yeah, the authoritarian way anymore. I just don't see who it saves. It's not saving me. So. We'll be right back with the rest of this conversation. But first, I want to remind you to go to wardenway.org and you'll find out more about our other offerings, including our award-winning monthly magazine, our book club, and also a public witness, our subscriber e-newsletter, to help you make sense of faith, culture, and politics. You'll find links to all of these and more at wordandway.org. And now, back to this conversation. So you just alluded to just all of the things that have been in the news in recent weeks, not just the critical race theory and the ordination at Saddleback, but allegations that Russell Moore has made about racism and covering up sexual abuse by some SBC leaders. Uh, there's been allegations about Paige Patterson making some racist comments, uh, stealing just outright theft from Southwestern Seminary. All of this is, you know, linked to the presidential race with Moeller and Stone and Litton. And, you know, it's, it, there's a, it, it feels like a real, just like disaster train wreck. I don't know. One of those types of metaphors. We're both former Southern Baptists. And as a, you know, an ex-Southern Baptist, and you're watching all of this somewhat as an outsider, but also somewhat as, you know, a near observer and, you know, someone who used to be in that community. What are your feelings as you're watching all of this happen? Um, nauseous resignation? <laughs> Is that a feeling? <laughs> but, I mean, you know, well, I want to talk about, I want yeah. you to talk about that a little bit, because, you know, what you didn't say was glee, right? And so, you know, it's like, I think on the one hand, it would be easy for us to walk away and be like, ha, see, you know, we told you so. But at the same time, you know, we were both, and we've talked about this before, we were both formed by this tradition and by these churches. And so I wonder how you you balance those variety of emotions in a moment like this. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's so I've already said before that I grew up in Louisville. And um, so I guess the in, the nauseous resignation. So part of that is actually um, because this type of uh, all of the um, allegations and the the what's coming out, what what Russell Moore was saying behind closed doors or through his letters or what he was dealing with. And, you know, I mean, man, I grew up in Louisville and, and next to Southern Baptist Seminary. And I'll just say it like if it wasn't Al Mohler, maybe it'd be something somebody else just the same. But as soon as the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary became the conservative place that it is, those types of behaviors were happening in Louisville all the time. And from, I mean, maybe not constant, but th there's always, I mean, there were people uh, fired from that seminary, even though they had tenure, because they, the people, they figured out that those were people that would not follow orders without asking questions. So they fired them, and um, those are professors, and 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 probably other people too. Uh, everybody else that worked there was basically on gag order for anything negative um, until they retired or moved on or find another way. Uh, the my church where I grew up went on a blacklist of some type. Like it's not very clear to me. Obviously, it it I'm not saying there was ever a document, but it just became known that uh, whereas in the eighties, there had been like over a hundred or so seminary students just in a singles group in the, in our church. Like it's, it went down to a trickle of like 10, you know? So, and then uh, professors that didn't want to get fired, they had to not go to our church anymore. I mean, like this is all happening to, around me and I'm like nine years old, you know, like my very best friend in church, her dad lost her job. So this is both very close to me. And also I've been watching it so long that I know that it happens. I know that it hurts a lot of people whenever it happens. So I there's just Southern Baptist people who have jobs, who are in churches, who know these people, who are family and friends. Like, I just am so grieved for them because I it's it, there's not always a rhyme or a reason. It's just whatever sometimes is decided must be done to shore up the authority, you know, you just, there's, there's not a sense of that the community is to be cared for, you know, each sheep, regardless of who it is and how far it has wandered. That is not how they act. Like there's no like going to find the lost sheep. It is just, uh, that one's old and, you know, or that one's going to be unruly, like, boop. And, um, that's the feel, right. I'm, I'm like describing a feeling, uh, and just, and that, that, has continued to occur and and I just don't really have any glee because I don't think that I don't think that the power is going to be overthrown in in a week or two. I I think it's going to last and I think it's going to continue. I don't there's um and that means that that'll probably be a much smaller Southern Baptist group, but what Southern Baptists have always been able to do ever since the late 1800s is figure out ways and drives to like expand itself again. Like it's, it's, why do you think it's so good <laughs> at like church planting? Because it can just figure out how to expand. And then we have more of the, it's, I just see it more on a cycle. I'm very sorry, uh, Brian. I just don't have anything 
good to um, like silver linings about this moment. Um, and because, and, and I think it's because, you know, it's been 30 years. It's not always one person. Like if, like I said, if it wasn't Al Mohler, it's probably going to be somebody else. Paige Patterson, he did some of it. If it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else. Like there's, um, and I think that that's, that's one of the reasons why it is systemic. It is entrenched. It's an institution that is uh, being, has just been corrupted by authoritarianism. Maybe from, I mean, it's, I'm not saying that that's all it is. There's always been counter narratives. There's always been other types of people. There's always been, you know, um, somebody that's, read the ethics or decided to practice what they preach and then they realize that they they're leading the way down a different way but that authoritarian uh impulse that started with the southern baptist to just sort of save its slaveocracy save its southern you know pa plantation patriarchy like save the 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 white power you know like you know save itself save itself like that is that's what's in charge right now it's been in charge for 50 years i i just don't know that the structure is set up to um take account for itself yeah and you know the, the structural question is is important i mean you know there was a day when Russell Moore was one of those figures in Louisville that was part of feeding this beast. And now he's been mm -hmm. chewed up and spit out by the beast. And so, you know, there is this, this fundamentalism is always needs a new heretic, uh, real or imagined. You, you made a comment about not going after the lost sheep. I mean, fundamentalism always needs to be kicking out more sheep, you know, not, not, not just not going after the lost one, but we've got to get rid of something. There has to be somebody to fight. And as long as the system is built on that, there will always be somebody else to attack. You know, today's conservative hero is tomorrow's liberal heretic. And that's a systemic problem. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you just straight up called it fundamentalism because, you know, they haven't liked to be called that for a long time. But that is, historically speaking, what is happening. And I think if anybody has read uh, Kristen Cobes Dumais book, Jesus and John Wayne, she lays that out beautifully, that we're just seeing um, fundamentalism and evangelicalism garb, you know, and that includes the Southern Baptist Convention. And um, so, yeah, but someone else was talking about like, what's the difference between if, if you have like the culture war style of Christianity? Again, that is that is a stance about culture. It's not that I'm the only person talking about culture and they're not because they're only reading the Bible. Of course not. They are. Um, so, you know, you have Southern Baptists. And I, I think that they're actually, again, if we thought historically and like you'd let me wander down, like I do think that that's kind of the the. The Southern Baptists, they, they do have this like mission arm, right? And is the mission arm about going to other cultures or is it about having a culture war? And and the so and I think that's kind of where if it's how about having a culture war, um, then it's definitely on this fundamentalism uh framework. And um, yeah, and you're always talking about culture, it's always us versus them. You're right, it's about you know, circling building walls and trenches. It's a very much a purity or purist oriented. There's very little room for uh, 
for change for for at least if you're lower in the ranks there's just or at a certain spot that middle management position there's really nothing that you can do to step out of line like if you know i guess if you have zero power and they don't think that you're going to be of worth like you can run around and do whatever you want in the southern baptist now if you're at the top well you've made it you're kind of the magnanimous man of the southern baptist convention you have been sort of you've made it to the authority position and sort of have been now it's whatever you do is by whatever you do because you're you you can be moral and you are moral and if you did something wrong it was for the sake of the war and you know or the sake of the larger you know group and you're you're just kind of sitting you know you're that you know, um, Willie Jennings, when I took his courses, he would just say, that's the that's the Southern plantation magnanimous man. You sit there, you are morality. Just it. So whatever you do is right. And everybody is your appendage. And if they're doing what you want them to do, then they are right. And if they're not, then they're morally wrong. And that's how you handle your slaves and your women is just, are they being your good appendages? Okay, fine. But if they're not, like, uh, we got to you know, got to change things or beat somebody or cut them out or, you know, all this stuff. So I'm not saying that like, it's a one-to-one -one ratio with the Southern Baptist Convention or other type of fundamentalist groups in the Southern um, states of America, but there is that sense of, if I've made it to the top, like, like that's how Paige Patterson can get like that in the back room, because he is, he is morality of Southern Baptist life, whatever he does. God already said it was okay because I'm Paige Patterson and I have this mantle. And that's why it's been so tough for anybody to get him to go because he keeps trying to, you know, grab funds from Southeastern and Baylor. That's been in the news, trying to grab hold of this like trustee uh, trust fund. Yes, he's been, he took things from uh, Southwestern. And he has got this back room, like he doesn't have to have his name on it until he wants it with the uh, the network or whatever it is that they're calling that that's our really entrenched culture war, masculinity, we're going to do all this. But but it's that thing. It's I mean, that's how it works. That's how you end up getting people at the top running amok because they can they think that whatever they do is excusable or moral. And then everybody is either towing the line and. Or if you're like a Russell Moore and you just, you figure out you don't want to be in the inner room anymore, or you're going to have these external standards besides the person that's in power at the moment, and you won't shift your, like a weather vane, then you see what happens to Russell Moore. You walk, he gets psychologically threatened, you get elbowed out of rooms, you get, you know, um, you know, all the other things that he's mentioned. And then now he's found another way, you know, what, what is nice for Russell Moore is that he was, he wasn't just fired. Like they could have done that. They could have, fired, but you know, he, he found a place to land and walked out and all those things. But so I know this is very, this, I'm like this, I feel like I'm, I mean, I'm literally talking to you. Like we're in a movie. I just feel like we've left. But it feels like a bad sequel. We've seen this one already before. It is. Oh, we've seen. I've seen it already. Yeah, I've seen it. I mean, if you if you want to go read the prequels, go read Jesus and John Wayne, and it's right there. And um, if you if you want to go read it on the 
you know, on any number of sides, you know, if you want to go read it, especially with critical race theory in mind, Anthea Butler's white evangelical racism, it's, it's right there. It's like, there it is. I mean, if you, or if you want, I mean, I'll hand you the histories that I've written of Simmons College. It's right there. Like it's, but um, yeah, that's, it's tough. Thinking about that, my last question for you is, you know, you, you grew up in this culture and you're still there near the belly of the beast, if we can, you know, but you didn't walk away from church. And in fact, instead, you, you've actually like, you know, you went through and became a minister and went to seminary. I mean, you, you decided to, you saw all of this, you know, like horrible stuff happening in God's name by God's people and decided you'd like to study this even more. So right, and train other people, yeah, train other people. So like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think some people would just, just walk away. And so, but you, you haven't, you've tried to find a different way of being Baptist, of being Christian. So I wonder maybe on a more hopeful note, like why, why did you stay? Yeah. Well, for, you know, and I do want to say, I, um, I have nothing but, uh, sympathy and, and, you know, you know, just heart rendering empathy for, for people who did walk out. I mean, that's, there's no way in the world that that I would be judgmental of anybody not taking my path. I definitely think that there's been a um, uh, something different in the way that I've responded. Um, so I would just say, um, I think two things. Uh, one thing is definitely more sort of testimonial or confessional. Um, and that is that um, from a very young age and all throughout this time, I have had several experiences where I have found God breaking through all of that that I have just described, both for myself or what I've been learning, just breaking through. And I have found encounter with God, with Christ, um, in the midst of that hard time. So I think I have this very... Um, uh, if, if I'm certain of something, I mean, I'm certain of many things, I guess I, I talk, I talk a good talk. I'm certain, but so I would say that. So testimonially, I cannot, I cannot pronounce this as the standard across everyone's life. Right. But as a good testimonial Baptist, I you know, will say that they both personally and with groups and throughout um, and even my own calling to um, to be ordained and to go into ministry, it has been God piercing through all of that. And, and I have been encountered, and it has made me want to be with God all the time. Like, I just can't stop wanting to be with God, and I'm just wanting to be with Jesus. And, and I, I, like, like, there's my Baptist trick right there. Like, and, I mean, and it's true. You know, like, you mentioned it. I mean, like, my calling personally, like, was like this culmination. I did a whole year as a Baylor University grad student. And um, like I did a whole year of like writing papers, just analyzing women's ordination. Like, was it cool? Was it good? You know, you know, what does it mean from scripture? What does it mean? Uh, all these other ways. Um, and then the summer, like I was actually working for a Southern Baptist camp, Centricid by Lifeway. And I was visiting a Southern Baptist church in Southern Georgia and like sort of in the middle of the sermon had this vision and God was like, Laura, I would like you to uh, jump into the fire just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And we're going to call that ministry vocation. Okay. And I was like, 
okay. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's both this, I know God's there and I know that's where God is calling me to go is back into that fire of whatever that is and knowing, and I think that's kind of a very like fraught female calling story. Like I know that people aren't going to understand, but I've just got to jump. And even if I get burned, it will be to God's glory. Like that's kind of the, the thing. And so that's really one of just personally what has kind of helped me through. But I think on the other side, I have, um, I've just done, found that more attention to these cultures, not necessarily because I want to be at war with culture, but because like we can broaden um, our imaginations with like what God is doing in the cultures of the Bible and in my culture as I read the Bible and in our cultures as we are expressing our faith. I mean, I am a mission professor. So there's like a whole other side of how the faith has traveled through time and across space, through the spirit, you know, and things like that. And and I think that has kind of kept me uh, going. And so it's a very open-ended sort of like, um, you know, like kind of like God is going to, um, there's a, there's a line that um, my pastor, when I was attending a Black Baptist church for a long time, there was a line he would say a lot that, like, God makes a way out of no way, and the biblical image would be from the tomb to resurrection. That's what that is. And I just, I sit with that a lot as well. So, I mean, as, I guess, as nauseously grieved and sad as I am about all the things in the news, like, I still sort of just hold on to those images of of the God that comes, walks out of the tomb and the God that has broken in through all of that um, stuff to get to me. And I mean, that's just very like self-centered, but it's kind of lovely. It's like, I'll talk about that all day too. <laughs> so I mean, but that's, and, but I think that's great because then I can kind of sit and because everybody's faith journey doesn't look exactly like mine and I don't have to have it that way. You know, I could listen to yours. Or I could listen to any of our readers and listens to their faith stories and with, with trust and appreciation. You know I mean? They can read the Bible and pray and encounter God. It's not that I'm their authority to get there. It's um, I just want us to have this bigger realm uh, to welcome each other in and to, to be, reading and praying of the Bible together. So y'all come. <laughs> Altar call time. Here we go. Altar call time. Did I, I mention I'm a professor of mission? <laughs> it does come out. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. you know, you, you can't, you can't squelch the spirit. So, you know, <laughs> no. Mm -mm. well, Laura, thanks so much for joining us on the program and, and talking through all these important issues with, with us. And I appreciate it. Oh, I'm so thankful to be here. Thank you so much. This has been a great time. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dangerous Dogma. You can find more information and links in the show notes at dogma.wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our website, wordandway.org, to learn more about our other offerings, including A Public Witness, a subscriber e-newsletter to help you make sense of faith, culture, and politics. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review. It really will help more people to find the show. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, 
as well as our website, monthly magazine, and other offerings. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.